0: So let's go ahead and uh, get a start here. And let me see here. Can, Zach, can I ask you oh, to...
1: and
0: oh? huh, yell at everybody? No, that's fine. Oh, so Zach, could you and uh, pray? pray. pray. Yeah. Sure.
1: Lord and Savior, we thank you for uh, the time that we get to spend uh, putting pieces together. Uh, not so that we can create something that will look good or uh, make us feel smart, but you know, Lord, so that we can understand your word better and uh, better understand our place in it. And uh, give us the humility and the wisdom to, to grasp your truth in a proper way. And thank you for Dr. snowberger being with us. In Christ's name, amen. 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 Yeah. Okay. Come on in. Well, we
0: doubled during that prayer, that we prayed to so. <laughs> okay. Well, last week we started talking about the covenants. Specifically, we're dealing with Israel's covenants because those are the ones that uh, become the the, the criti- critical point of departure of dispensationalism from other systems. So we're not, we're not so much dealing with the Adamic covenant. We talked about the differences uh, between it and the uh, covenant of works. Uh, that is uh, that is held by covenant theology, and we talked about the idea of an Edenic covenant, which I don't really like to think of as a covenant. It doesn't seem to have any of the earmarks of <coughs> a covenant, but there is sort of an arrangement that takes place after Adam falls. Okay, and so there's some sort of a setup uh, whereby if, by, whereby salvation becomes available in the form of this first gospel. But I think in the main. Uh, in some ways, I want to say there's radical differences here between a dispensationalist and a covenant theologian. But in some ways, there's very little because you've, you've got you've got an initial arrangement that Adam fails to to uphold. So the so the covenant, if indeed we call it that, fails almost immediately, and an, an another arrangement comes up. Of course, covenant theologians would call that the covenant of works. Um, I'm not real real. Uh, <laughs> I'm not real comfortable calling it that. And then we've got the we've got the Noahic covenant, which is sort of a a, a a covenant made with mankind that formalizes the civil arrangement. There really is not a whole lot of difference here. What really become the uh, sticking points are these four: the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic. And new covenants. So these are these are the four where we find a, a great deal of difference, and those are the four we, we're concentrating on. We talked about the Abrahamic last week. We talked about the Mosaic last week, and we got through those two. Uh, to, uh, and the uh, the big thing that sort of emerges here is they remain unfulfilled. Okay, uh, there there uh, the the promises that are there of of a land. Uh, have not been fulfilled uh, we we are we, we bandied about whether it's possible that they got their land at some point during their history and I suggested that at least twice they probably had at least uh Military or economic control over the whole land land area that had been promised but they didn't keep it and the and the and the covenant is a forever covenant and so uh, we, we look at that and say it's it's unfulfilled in that sense. Um, so uh, the, uh, the the land the promise the seed uh, that ha- that is that is basically a nation uh, that will that will that will come to its own and uh, and, and realize fantastic blessings has not been fulfilled. I mean, there is a nation sold as sort of holding together here, uh, but uh, what we have in the modern day as, as the nation of Israel shouldn't be thought of as a fulfillment of that covenant. Uh, the nation is in somewhat of a disarray, uh, as we hear in the news almost nightly. Okay, uh, So we're looking for a day when Israel will be comfortable in their land, uh, was that statement that Netanyahu made just recently? Uh, if the Arabs lay down their weapons, there will be peace. If Israel lays down their weapons, there will be no Israel. So, uh, so, and because and, and, they don't live together in peace, and that's the promise. You know, promises that they would live together in 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 a, in a state of blessing. Okay, and so those that, those aren't aren't fulfilled. Same thing. And we and we looked at the mosaic covenant as well. And you uh, know, this one's a little bit trickier uh, because we actually find that the Mosaic Law, which is is the vehicle of this covenant, is fulfilled, completed in Christ, and yet there are promises contained within the Mosaic covenant that are forever promises as well. And uh, they are reiterated, particularly when you come to Deuteronomy chapter 30. uh, There's there's promises of a circumcised heart of the whole nation. It's sort of a prequel, a precursor to the new covenant that's promised later on in Jeremiah. So there's going to be something that will, will happen here to make the Mosaic covenant come to its completion okay, uh, and as we're going to see, the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant, while separate covenants are, they have a lot of, of similarities and overlap. Uh, basically we're going to see what, what is new about the New Covenant is that God will actually personally come in and change the hearts of the Israelites so that they meet the conditional terms of the, of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, so it's, so we said it's an Israelite covenant that is that is incomplete. Okay, now yes, go ahead.
1: Just a few minutes ago, uh, Mark, you said there were sticking
0: points: Abrahamic, Mosaic, etc. Uh-huh. And that when you say sticking points, that's between the the covenant theologians and the dispensational right. theologians. Yeah, okay, okay. yeah. The covenant theologian would say there's basically one set of covenants, really one covenant. Uh, it's that covenant of redemption. You know, We looked at this one here, the covenant of redemption, which there really is no evidence for in the scriptures, except to say that there must have been some sort of an agreement between the Godhead that they were going to pursue a certain course of action. I mean, the decree of God is out there. Um, but whether we could call that a covenant of redemption is, 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 a, is something I, I question. Um, and then God establishes a covenant of works, which Adam promptly fails, and then to, to replace it, he he uh, he institutes a covenant of grace. But really, the covenant of grace, for the for the covenant theologians, is a is a means whereby someone else completes the covenant works on our behalf. Okay, so it's really just one covenant. Is that Bob? No. Okay. Either that or a mouse. <laughs> uh, uh, so. Oh, <laughs> So we've, so we've got the uh, so, so and, and then each of these covenants along the way is just sort of an expansion or a re, either a reiteration or a reiteration with an expansion until we get to the completion uh, at the at the very end. Okay, so it's just really one covenant, and so as you look at these, you say, okay, this is an. And this is a this is a covenant made with Israel, but there really can't be two peoples of God, and Israel and the Church, and so there must be one people of God, and so we fulfill the Abrahamic covenant in the Church, and you know we, we did look at a little bit of the trickiness of it because there is a a you know there's seeds and seed that are part of the Abrahamic covenant, the plural says there's going to be a nation of Israelites, and then there's the singular that has reference to the the. Christ really—that the, the the singular seed is going to bring blessing to to everyone. Same thing here with the mosaic, and and, and so the, the the thought will be okay. Well, yes, there is a promise of a land, and 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 a prom, and uh, there's a law, and the law you know continues on. At least its moral sections of a land promise sort of morphs until we have you know the the new heavens and the new earth down here. It's basic, and and, and that. And that's the way they justify it. Okay, so there's a little promise here of a little postage size, postage stamp sized piece of land here, but God actually gets it, makes it bigger and bigger and bigger until it's the whole heaven, whole new heaven and new earth. And so, even though it's not fulfilled exactly according to its terms, who would complain? It's better. It basically is basically the argument here. Uh, but the dispensationalist says, no, these promises are made. To Israel, so each one of these, it says, it's an Israelite covenant. To Israel belong the law, the promises, and the covenants, and so they're fulfilled in Israel. And then we've got you know Romans nine to eleven, where where is has Israel fall? Have my have my kinsmen according to the flesh fallen so as to be irre, irrecoverable? And he basically spends three chapters saying, no, 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 God's going to revisit them. There is a period of time. Where God, in order to make uh, the, uh, uh, the his his people jealous for, for 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 following God, turns to the Gentiles and extends blessings to them uh, somewhat independently to in order to make the Israelites jealous. It's not just it's it, not as so though he discards them, but it's so that later on they can come back to him and be regrafted in, according to the imagery uh, that's used there. So. Um, so these are these are Israelite promises to be filled, fulfilled by by Israel, a, a literal ethnic Israel. And so uh, after that's why after we're done this section of the covenants, we're going to turn to hermeneutics or Bible study methods. How we how we understand the terms of Scripture? Can they morph like this? What does it mean to take a piece of 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 of, of Scripture? And, and, and understand it normally or what's sometimes called literally. It's a term that's sort of been bruised a bit, uh, but I still think it's a useful term. Uh, so we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, But uh, all that to bring us to where we are here, to our discussion here of the Davidic covenant, the third of the four covenants with Israel proper. Um, as we did the last two times, we'll go ahead and read. Uh, the section here, the, the pertinent section in Scripture, I'm just going to use the uh, 2 Samuel uh, 7 passage. It's reiterated again uh, many ways word for word in 1 Chronicles 17, although there's a few tweaks and differences. And then Psalm 89 is a longer discussion of it uh, in, in a more of a poetic form. What, what page, uh, but excuse me, what page are we on? Probably around page 42. Thank you. So the Davidic covenant? Forty-one. Forty-one. Okay. Okay. So Second Samuel seven eleven to sixteen. I mean, we could we could start. Um, and there's perhaps a few details that you want. We want to uh explain before we we come to the covenant proper this is a statement that the lord is making to nathan the prophet that he is supposed to go and deliver to david starting here in verse five and he's to go and announce these things to david um respecting some things about the uh the house uh, that, that is to be built the temple um and and uh, and his own house and 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 how that's going to how that's going to play out, because of course David wants to build the temple. God says, no, it's going to be for your son. And so he sort of explains why that's not going to happen. But then he says, But what you can tell David is this. These are the positive things, starting in verse eleven here. The Lord declares to you It's really sort of in the middle of the verse here. The Lord declares to you, this is the positive statement. That the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Not a a literal wooden house here. That was the discussion earlier. But this is going to be a, 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 a progeny, a legacy. A house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. This is a reference to Solomon, his immediate son. He is the one who is going to build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him. So just just like the Mosaic covenant, remember? The Mosaic covenant was such that any individual generation of Israelites might fail to realize the benefits of the covenant. But that doesn't mean that the whole covenant is suspended because of a recalcitrant generation. Even though there's going to be failures in this, in this regal line, and we read about them, particularly in the books of the kings, uh, that, that doesn't mean that the uh, covenant is suspended. Because it's going to be some sort of a chastening short of the disannulment of the covenant. So when he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod of men with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I remove before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all of these things. Okay, so let's look at the provisions here. First of all, for David, there's going to be an everlasting dynasty. So there is going to be a king that will reign forever. This line from the line of David, there would be there would be a series of kings, uh, and as as things unfold a little bit, we recognize that there is an ultimate king, uh, a singular king, Christ, who will assume the throne, and personally have that throne forever. So it's an everlasting kingdom then, or which means there has to be a realm. So it's not just that we can call Christ the king in some sort of an abstract sense. There has to be a kingdom, something he is ruling over, and an everlasting throne. Uh, which could be a literal throne—that—that that there would be some sort of a literal throne that he sits upon—but certainly, whatever whatever we can say, a right of rulership. Okay, um, and we're going to we're going to give a, a glancing discussion here about the uh, the kingdom, uh, but come back to it in a in, in a in a in a little bit. Okay, a little bit further here, so. And that's, that's, that's part of the, the question as to whether the kingdom is in effect currently as to whether we've got those three things, a king, a realm, and a right to rule. For Solomon, then, we find some, some specific things. He's going to have the privilege over the bottom of 41, I believe. So for Solomon, he's going to have the privilege of building a house for God, here in verse 13. Then uh, his kingdom would be established forever. Now, as we, we're going to see, as we're going to see, uh, there is a there is a little glitch along along the way here because uh, after Jeconiah the king, uh, there is a there is a statement made to Jeconiah his, I think the 26th removed uh, from Solomon, who and the statement is that no more kings will sit on the throne from your loins, which is, is it seems seems like a horrible statement because it, it sounds like this uh, this this covenant is annulled. But there is actually a, 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 a how can I say it a, a loophole that's built in here uh, that allows it to continue. There is an unconditioned everlasting throne, and then we said here a chastening. But one short of a disannulment of the covenant, so you'll be chastened with the rods of men. But this this is not an ultimate uh, dissolution dissolution of the Davidic covenant. Okay, now Solomon is not promised a perpetual house. Uh, this anticipates this curse that was placed on Jeconiah and his seed in Jeremiah twenty two. Uh, Je- Je- Jeconiah. Who is the last of the of the Davidic kings prior to the exile? Uh, could not pass on the kingship, but apparently he did pass along the throne, the legal title, or the right to rule through Joseph. Or this is the legal right. Uh, Because if you look at you look at Matthew and Luke respectively, and you look at the genealogies, and they don't line up exactly, and uh, it seems as though Joseph the first is the first is the lineage of Joseph, which comes through Jeconiah and, and through a series and ends up in Joseph, and it's passed on to Christ legally, okay, not biologically, but legally, okay. Then we take a look at Mary. And we find that Mary receives uh, her. Uh, she she is from the line of David as well, but not through the regal line. She 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 gets her uh, connection to David with an, with another son of David. So there's there's two tracks here. Both of them are fulfilling a function. The legal right to rule apparently comes through Joseph, and then and then the uh, the uh, uh, the. Uh, the promise here from David through through Mary, ultimately. Okay? Uh, so, that's the promise for Solomon. And then for Israel, uh, there will be permanent rest in the land of promise. And again, so obviously we're, we're leading up to the statement. It remains unfulfilled because they have not had permanent rest in the land of promise. Then there's also a charter for humanity as well. And this is this is uh, perhaps is a little bit harder to see here because David makes his his reply here largely one of just gratitude, but he makes this statement here as that this covenant uh, describe, he describes this covenant as the custom of men, okay, uh, in the distant future. Um, And apparently he's seeing some sort of an eschatological element here because there's a promise it's going to last forever. And so he sees here that there's some sort of, this is the pattern you're establishing for all of mankind. So in some sense, all of mankind were ultimately come under uh, the, the, the auspices of this kingdom. So Walter Kaiser here describes it as a charter for humanity for the distant future, and I think that's an appropriate way of looking at it. So all per, all nations will profit from this eternal arrangement, not just Israel. Which, and again, there, there's some debate on this one, but it seems like we have you know echoes of the Abrahamic covenant that in David or the King, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Uh, that this is, this is something, this is a charter for all of humanity. So, so it's, it's broader than just Israel. It's, it's made, it, it's made properly with Israel, but there are, but there are blessings that sort of extend out beyond that uh, to the nations as well. Okay, so those are the terms of the covenant. Let's look at its characteristics just as we did with the other two covenants. It's an unconditional promissory covenant. Okay, there's no entry into covenant by David. He's apparently sleeping one night. Nathan says, hello, got a message from God. This is what I'm going to do. And it's not as though David says, all of these things I will obey. And, you know, there's, no, there's no back and forth here. It's just an announcement. God says, I'm, I'm making this covenant with you. Um, now, there is, again, there's, there are covenants within it, uh, conditions within it such that if a king is not faithful, he might personally not realize the blessings of the covenant. That doesn't mean that the covenant is suspended. Okay, So it's the whole covenant is ultimately unconditional, even though there are conditional elements within it so that generations or individual kings uh, uh, would not realize all of its benefits. It's also Israelite. It touches David. His literal immediate seed Solomon and his literal distant seed, who is Christ. Now it also involves a place and a land for my people Israel. Okay, so it's very narrowly defined. Now apparently there are blessings that extend to the rest of the nations, but for but the but the covenant proper doesn't even mention the nations. Okay, it's only David's response. That, where we hear the, those, those echoes of, of the rest of the nations having benefit. Again, it's eternal. And we find this word repeated again three times: verse ten, verse thirteen, verse uh, verse sixteen. Forever, forever, forever. This is this is this is a this is a repeated theme. Lest there be any doubt. And for that reason, I think we can conclude that it remains unfulfilled. Now, having said that. Let's look here at some of the other options that are raised other than the unfulfilled option. Okay, let's let's look here uh, at what happens. Covenant theologians regard the Davidic covenant as ongoing since the coming of Christ. And so he is, so Christ is the king. He, his new realm is either one of two things, depending on, on what, what, uh, what, what, Breed or or branch of covenant theologian you speak to, uh, the realm is either the hearts of men, hearts of believers, or the church collectively. Okay, so the kingdom has taken on a new form. It's either the kingdom in your hearts, okay, or a kingdom equals the church. Okay, so that is the new realm. Progressive dispensationalists regard the kingdom as being fulfilled in stages progressive stages Christ established the kingdom in the gospels rules from the right hand of the father presently so his throne at this point is in heaven there's no throne there's no earthly throne right now no physical kingdom per se but that doesn't mean that there's not going to be one so the progressive dispensationalist remains a dispensationalist because he says in the millennium there will be a literal throne with Jesus sitting on it and there will be a literal kingdom of, of land and people. Okay. Traditional dispensationalism, which we're, which I'm defending in here, regards the kingdom as having been offered, rejected, and suspended and will be resumed at the second coming and establishment of the millennial kingdom. Now, there's a lot, a lot of texts. In fact, like I said, we're actually going to have a whole <coughs> section on the kingdom coming. But let's just look at one text for now. Um, this is uh, Luke 19. There's a parable here given. It's, uh, with, uh, it's connected here with Palm Sunday, which we just celebrated here three days ago. Christ is moving toward Jerusalem where he's going to lay down his life and he he performs three miracles, right? He he makes a blind man to see, he makes a lame man to walk, and he makes the crooked straight in the form of Zacchaeus. And he's coming in towards Jerusalem and there's a sense of excitement growing because they recognize, at least some people with him are recognizing, hey, these, these these are messianic, fulfillments of promise prophecy here and so there's there's a there's a sense of excitement growing that christ is going to jerusalem to establish his kingdom and it says here in verse 11 while they were listening to this he went on to tell them a parable because he was near jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of god was going to appear at once okay and so this parable is given to say um you might be a little bit misinformed about what's going on, and so he then explains in the form of a parable here, story about a nobleman who is going to leave, go to a far country to receive a kingdom, and then to return. Okay, and so uh, th- this actually happened. If you're if you're familiar with the uh, the history of Israel, when Herod the Great died, his two sons Antipas and Archelaus. Couldn't, couldn't get along very well. They both wanted their father's kingdom, um, along with Philip, uh, a lesser brother. Uh, and, and so they all go to Rome, where Caesar Augustus is, is to basically parcel up their father's kingdom, Herod, Herod the Great's kingdom. And so they go to this distant country to receive a kingdom. Uh, there is actually a group of Jews, we, we, read, we know this from Josephus, there was a Jew, group of Jews who, who went along, tagged along with them in order to let Caesar Augustus know, we do not want these men to rule over us. So the, so the parable would have really resonated with these people because this just, this happened historically. Of course, their pleas fall on deaf ears. And Caesar Augustus parcels up the kingdom. Part of it goes to Antipas. Part of it goes to Archelaus. Part of it goes to Philip. And then they return. And when they return, there's a lot of carnage, because these the 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 the, the Jews had had hoped that perhaps they were under they were out from under the thumb of the Herods, and that they would they would have a, a measure of freedom. But no, they came back, and they just I mean, they, they, they killed many hundreds of the Jews uh, as when they asserted their rulership uh, over 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 Israel uh, in in their respective sections of Israel. Okay, so 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 Jesus tells this story, and it makes sense to the people because this is this is the way it works. So Jesus says, "I'm not going to establish my kingdom. Effectively, I'm going to go." To a far country, and I'm gonna be gone. And then the rest of the parable is what you're supposed to do while I'm gone. You know, occupy till I come. Okay. Each of you has an investment that you're supposed to do something with for for the purpose of Christ and his kingdom, okay? Because I'm coming back and I'm going to judge, just like the Herods did, only this time in justice. Okay. So so be, be doing what you're supposed to be doing while you're gone. And so there's this, this statement here that the kingdom is not going to start right away. In fact, you know, right before the ascension, when you're in, in Acts chapter one, uh, Christ is again talking to his disciples. He has been talking for forty days. It says forty days they've been talking about the kingdom. You know, he says for well, Acts 37 thirty-seven, three three days he was gone in in the grave. But thirty-seven days he talks about this this kingdom. And right as he's about to, to ascend up into heaven, there's a statement. Are you going to establish the kingdom now? And it's, I, I, you don't want to assume anything about the, the expressions and the tones of what's going on here. But it's almost as though Christ sort of rolls his eyes and says, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons. And then, whoosh, he's gone. Um, so, so again, this, this, uh, this, again, a similar statement here that the kingdom isn't starting yet. Okay, uh, whatever we have in, in its place, uh, perhaps we can use kingdom-type language to describe it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to go that far uh, to, to think in terms of the church fulfilling a kingdom mandate and and pursuing kingdom causes, but. Actually, defining the church as the kingdom doesn't seem to fit those two two sections of scripture. Uh, Christ is going away, and the kingdom is postponed, delayed, and we are in what some have called an interregnum in in the middle of the reign, between the reigns. There was the David, David and, his, and his sons, and his sons and sons and sons. The gap. This is their interregnum, and then a, a reign that will be established in the millennium. Okay, we'll talk a little bit more because uh, later about the kingdom because there are a number of texts in the New Testament that seem to suggest that the kingdom's in place, okay? Uh, it, it becomes something of a tension because while we have these passages that say, no, the kingdom is not now, we've also got passages that seem to say, yeah, the kingdom is now. And so we'll, 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 we'll deal with that in a little bit. But for now, let, let's just say that there's some pretty key texts that say that the kingdom is coming. Certainly, the full expression of the kingdom is coming, and uh, some would say the the entirety of the kingdom is still is still ahead of us. Okay, I, I know Wes, you're you're itching to ask the question here, but any any general <laughs> questions here? Uh, we'll come to, we'll come to it though, I no, promise. So anyway, I just ask. So it's basically the Davidic covenant
1: that mm-hmm. that that uh, that
0: says that uh, says that the physical kingdom is not now, and and right. I yeah. and I totally agree with that. Yeah, see, we're, yeah, we're talking about the Davidic kingship, which ultimately culminates in the millennial kingship. Right. Those uh, so Christ is not apparently reigning as the millennial or Davidic king as present. Now he still functions as the king of the universe as he always has. I mean that's. That's always been true. So you know, if we go back to our little diagram, he's always the the ruler over the, comp, the over the civic sphere, yeah. God's kingdom. That's eternal. It doesn't it doesn't ever
1: doesn't ever end.
0: But we're talking here about this this uh, narrower kingship over his people, and uh, it does seem to have these physical dimensions, material dimensions, Israelite dimensions that don't seem to be in place. Okay. So we will come back to talk about why there is kingdom language that seems to be used in association with the church, but for now, I think we can say that this king- kingdom, this, this Davidic kingdom that's being established, is not in place. The millennial kingdom, which will right. which will come into place and in, in play in the millennium.
1: Yeah, I thought that my impression of you know covenant theologians, the dispensation or progressive dispensationalists, to a degree was that when they spoke of the kingdom in your hearts, that that was their um, application of the new covenant. Is there some overlap there? Between well, there is, yes. Okay, I'm sure you're going to get there in a second. But right,
0: yeah. Again, for a covenant theologian, there's only one covenant. So, so there's uh, there's there's plenty of overlap. They almost, they're almost they almost liquid in, okay. in the way they're treated, yes. But uh, for, for, for those, you know, Christ's statement, for instance, that the kingdom is in your hearts... Uh, is 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 nigh unto you? Uh, it is with you, even even among you. Uh, that these kinds of statements are 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 the covenant theologians' green light to say, okay, this kingdom that was promised to David, that was earthy and had Israelite parameters, uh, that's sort of been morphed into something bigger. That Christ actually rules in the hearts of all believers, and and who can complain about that? I mean, it's it's better than this kingdom. Okay, so who so who would complain? Well, I guess I complain because the terms of the covenant are much more specific than that. Okay, so uh, to to summarize here, the the final view, the dispensational view, I think best answers the concerns. Uh, it, it, the preliminary terms of the covenant are, were fulfilled literally and historically. You know, Solomon did build a temple, a brick-and-mortar temple, actually, more than bricks, 30 tons of these 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 pieces of the of the temple. If you ever go to Israel, they're actually some of the pieces are 30 tons. They still don't know to this day how they got them onto the Temple Mount, um, because uh, you you can actually still see where the Romans came in A.D. 70 and pushed them off the Temple Mount and, and, and broke, the, uh, broke the stone below. There's, there's sort of a stone portico below. And you can still see these 30-ton rock. They're still laying there where the Romans pushed them. And the reason they're laying there is we can't move them. In fact, there was an attempt uh, a few years ago to, to bring in equipment, cranes and such, to, to move these, and they, they didn't have the means to move them. So they're still there. You can still you can still go and see them. So these are that's that's an aside. Uh, all, all except to say that these were this was a literal temple with literal stones uh, all pieced together. Okay, David and Solomon understood the terms of the covenant literally uh, because there's there's this realization. Okay, it's going to be my kids, and my people, and, and our people, the Israelites. Uh, the prophets understood the covenant literally. In fact, th- this, is, this, is, this is where I think the battle is, is won and lost in the trenches uh, for the dispensationalists. There's so much prophetic material uh, that's, that says that the prophets are anticipating a literal kingdom with a literal throne, with a literal king, in a literal city, with a literal group of people that are ethnically Jewish. And, and, it, and it's just repeated over and over and over and over and over again. And then to replace that with some sort of a spiritual gloss uh, does not seem uh, to be appropriate to the, uh, to the covenant. Individual Israelites understood the covenant literally. And, and uh, I'm, I'm going pretty quickly here just because I don't have time to look up all these passages. But uh, feel free to look them up on your own. And then I think also arguments for a present form of the kingdom rest on faulty exegesis. Uh, for instance, Matthew thirteen eleven. Uh, there's this this uh, there's this these these parables of the kingdom, and they're called the mysteries of the kingdom. Uh, there are a number of folks who have looked at that and said, "Aha! There's a mystery form of the kingdom." This is was. Uh, Uh, Even within dispensational life, this has been a very popular theory, um, mostly from those coming from the Dallas School of Dispensationalism. Um, uh, if, if If you'll indulge me, most of the professors at DBTS where I learned and now teach were, are from the Grace Theological Seminary School of Systematic Theology, which is for the most part the same, but there are some differences, and this is this is one of the biggest ones. Okay, uh, so Albert J. McLean, sort of the uh, the the brain trust of the Grace Theology, uh, uh, said there there was no mystery form of the kingdom, but rather that there are mysteries about the kingdom. Okay, so formerly formerly hidden details about the kingdom that were previously unknown, meaning that there would be a big gap, uh, now being revealed through these through these uh, these parables. Um, also, Colossians 1.13, there's this statement here uh, that uh, perhaps, the, perhaps one of the hardest ones for the dispensational, that says that he has transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. Well, that seems like a pretty strong statement here that we're in the kingdom. We have been transferred into the kingdom of his dear son until you look at the parallel passage in Ephesians, which says he has you know, Colossians and Ephesians are almost brother and sister books. they have a great deal of overlap and content. and the parallel statement in Ephesians is he has seated us in the heavenly places in Christ. So if we're going to, if we're going to look at them the same way, we're either going to have to say we're literally in heaven and we're literally in the kingdom, or we are in the kingdom in the same sense that we are in heaven. That is, there's a guarantee, uh, a certainty, uh, if we can say it, citizenship uh, that's guaranteed, a place preserved for us, so certain that it's actually uh, uh, that actually Paul uses uh, past tense for it. So we've got, we've got we've got we've got. T- Granted, some texts here that look like the kingdom is here, uh, but uh, on a little bit closer look, it, it may not be so clean as, uh, as, as some have suggested. Okay? So, thoughts here on this kingdom, this, this Davidic covenant, this promise specifically of a king and a kingdom. Okay, last covenant is the new covenant and perhaps the hardest of all. You thought these were the ones we went through already were kind of onerous. Uh, well, this one gets the hardest. Okay. Let's, let's just read one. There's just, there's actually dozens of texts here about the new covenant in the Old Testament and, an, and, and not a few in the new testament, which actually becomes the complicating issue. But let's just, uh, Look at verses Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, which is probably the most complete statement of the new covenant, but by no means a comprehensive statement of it. Okay, so Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. A time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant that I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. So it's not going to be like the Mosaic covenant. Instead, and it says here, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband. I was faithful to my end of the covenant, but they, did, they weren't faithful. This is the covenant that I'm going to make with the house of Israel the, after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it upon their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man and his brother, saying, "Oh, the Lord." There's not going to be any internal evangelism within the nation of Israel because they will all know me, everyone, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And I will forgive their their, their wickedness and I will remember their sins. No more. Okay. So let's look at the provisions here as we have. The heart of every Israelite will be saved, will, will be changed. Every one. From the least of them to the greatest of them. They will all know me. And you can hear shades in, in Romans 11. Then all Israel will be saved. Every, every last one. Now their numbers will have been reduced. As a result of the tribulation, so it's it's going to be something of a of a smaller number than you might expect. But you know, as the nations you know descend on Jerusalem, intent on destroying the nation once and for all, uh, that's when 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 all hope seems lost. Christ appears in the sky and comes down with a sword in his mouth uh, again it, and and destroy all of the enemies. And what will happen at that time? They will look upon him whom they have pierced and weep. Because they recognize that was the Messiah. We missed it. We blew it the first time he came. But here he is, the Messiah. And and from the least of them to the greatest of them, they will all look upon him whom they have pierced and to a man be converted. Because God will send out his regenerating impulse. He will write his law upon their hearts uh, so that uh, uh, so that so that they will be instantaneously regenerated from the greatest of them to the least of them and they will all call upon the name of the Lord and serve him from shoulder to shoulder okay I'm going to borrowing from several Old Testament passages here to, to come up with those late but uh, and they're all here believe it or not uh, but every every Israelite's heart will be changed Israel will repent and be obedient because the uh, the holy spirit is is in their hearts. Israel will be forgiven on account of the old covenant with Abraham, okay? Again there's this, there's the there again we see this connection here between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenants have failed up till this point. Why have they failed? Because there's no internal mechanism in the covenant to make certain that this this group will actually fulfill their end of the bargain but this one's new and it and it will contain that element okay god will regather israel from the land uh, into the land where they will live together in safety that's not actually mentioned here in uh, jeremiah 31 but this is a theme that is reiterated over and over again that the literal israelites will come together into the literal land and they will dwell together in safety. And again, that's never happened. The animals will enter into covenant. In fact, we find occasions where the the wolf will lie down with a lamb, and elsewhere a lion with a lamb, and then elsewhere a child will put his hand into a cobra's nest and doesn't have to be wor doesn't isn't worried about them. Because they're apparently with this with this new covenant is something of a I don't know if I can say it. A partial reversal of the curse, not not entirely, uh, because there's still sin that goes on in the millennial kingdom. We we find out here, but there seems to be an almost a reversal of the curse. Because again, agriculturally, we find we, we find uh, statements here that uh, they'll they'll go out to plow a field and they'll be plowing a field to plant the field, and the reapers will overtake them. Well, obviously, a little bit of hyperbole here, uh, but uh, but it's just going to be fantastic growing conditions, and so there's there's going to be fabulous harvests. There's going to be fat and plenty in the land. Milk and honey will again flow. Uh, so there's this this promise here that the animals will enter into the covenant, and uh, and also even the land, and then the blessings will be permanent, never to be reversed. Again, we have all of this. Forever language, if we keep going, uh, there's, uh, there's uh, right in this, this chapter here, uh, there's, there's forever language here uh, that continues here uh, from verses 35 to 37. We also find, uh, not in this passage per se, but that the Gentiles were all, will also respond favorably to God's blessings on Israel and stream to her light. To employ her priestly services, nations will stream to her light, and uh, and uh, we find this repeated over and again throughout the the prophets uh, that the Gentiles will align line up and do what they were supposed to do in the Abrahamic covenant. They're going to they're going to treat is they're going to regard Israel as a kingdom of priests representing them to God.
1: When you say Gentiles, uh, I I just thought of, is
0: the error. Arab- Nation considered Gentile at this point. Yeah, yeah, they're they're not they're not Hebrew. So everybody else besides the uh, uh, Jewish or Hebrew race, right? Yeah. So so believers from yeah. Again, it's those who enter into the millennium. So it won't be their best word again you have the division of the sheep and the goats there so there's going to be a, 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 a culling out of the unbelievers so again it's not going to be everybody who survives the tribulation gets into the millennium there's going to be a culling um, so but, but those who remain are the ones who are converted uh, and then they'll still have children they'll be in natural bodies so they'll have children so that's why we have a rebellion at the end because uh, these people are all, all converted, uh, but their children will, will will rebel against their king at the end. That's when Satan's loose. For, mm-hmm. for a little season.
1: So I'm just, I'm trying to always put that together. 100% of the Jews at the end of the tribulation get saved, and whatever percent of the surviving Gentiles that accepted Christ during the tribulation and, but... Did not die yet. Those are the human bodies that go in and start repopulating. Yes, those
0: are the ones who go in in their natural bodies. Right. Which, incidentally, I, 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 maybe this is maybe it's not the time to say this. Uh, when Doug Moo wrote his defense of post tribulationalism that uh, that it's not really an Israelite kingdom per se. Um, that's he says this is the one problem I can't deal with with post tribulationalism Everybody is resurrected and gets new bodies, and, and that's when Christ comes. They escort him to the earth, and so, and so there's, there's, there's nobody to enter into the millennium in natural bodies. And he says that's, that's his biggest problem. He says he's not, sure, he's not sure what to do with that, which I think is a pretty big problem. Now, actually, his second edition, he does come up with something of a the first he, he, there was a second edition that came out 25 years later, so he does come up with uh, with a with a with a possible alternative there, but that was his first his first stab at it. He said, "I have no idea how there's people in their natural bodies in the millennium because my system doesn't allow for it." So, anyhow, other thoughts here. Okay, it's characteristics. Well, it's a binding suzerainty covenant. This is a matter of some debate. You may look at this and say, okay, yeah, sounds good. Um, but uh, there's actually a, a large percentage of, of theologians who would disagree with us. Okay. While well, God acts first by sprinkling the waters of regeneration, removing the heart of stone and planting a new heart and a new spirit, That is a regenerating impulse, which enables Israel to respond in faith and obedience. That's not the inauguration of the covenant. In fact, what we find the inauguration of the covenant is a lot like the Mosaic covenant. So Deuteronomy 50, 4 and 5. Actually, we could add a couple other texts to this, but we'll we'll just go to this one. It says here, in those days at that time, declares the Lord, the people of Israel and the people of Judah together will go in tears to seek the Lord their God. They will ask the way to Zion, turn their faces toward it. They will come and they will bind themselves to the Lord in an everlasting covenant that will not be forgotten. So the, the, the establishment of this new covenant is when national Israel enters into covenant. Okay. Which is going to be a very complicating question that we're going to have to deal with next time. Are we in the new covenant now? Okay. Well, one of the one of the key arguments against us being in the new covenant now is that the Israelites haven't come and bound themselves into covenant, into an eternal covenant that will last forever. Okay. the, the covenant hasn't been inaugurated in that sense. Uh, but I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, that'll probably be our discussion next time. Okay, so God acts first uh, by, by regenerating, but the people enter into this covenant. So it's a, it's a binding suzerainty covenant. And that's when the covenant officially commences, when the oath is sworn. It's also Israelite. It's made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Terms that really can't be reinterpreted to mean the church. It's Israel, Judah. Specifically, the two disjoined factions of tribes will be reunited in the Eschaton. So when you see Judah and Israel, what we're saying is the southern kingdom, which is largely Judah, but also uh, Simeon and and a part of Benjamin. And then Israel, which are the the other ten tribes that split off after (coughs) after Solomon died, okay, these, it's with these groups, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The, these are the people who are going to enter into covenant. So it's very specific uh, that it's going to be this this group of people. The newness of the new covenant points not to an entirely new term, uh, but to new provisions for fulfillment of the old covenant. Okay? That's what's really the new thing. It's eternal again. Forever, forever, forever. I mean, it's just everywhere. Lates throughout all these promises. And so I say here, it remains unfulfilled. Now, although regeneration and indwelling incur, uh, occur in the church today, and the church is somehow related to this new covenant, and I, and I think that's a comprehensive listing of all the references to the New Covenant and the New Testament, right there. Those those references there. None of the stated terms of the New Covenant in the, that are stated in the Old Testament have been fulfilled. So if you look at all the terms of the Old old covenant, of, of the old Testament as it details the, the New Covenant and all that's going to be part of it, you don't see any of them taking place in the New Testament, which, is, which puts a gigantic question mark here. Okay, Are we in the New Covenant or aren't we in the New Covenant? Okay. My argument is that the, the kingdom and the new covenant sort of rise and fall together. If we're in the kingdom, then we're in the new covenant. If we're not in the kingdom, we're not in the new covenant. Uh, but uh, again, uh, time's going to prevent us from going through the whole discussion tonight. So none of the stated terms in the Old Testament of the new covenant have ever been realized. Israel has not been restored to safety in the land. Wholesale conversion among the Jews has never occurred. The nations are not approving of the nation of Israel. Israel. Uh, there have been no dramatic zoological, horticultural, meteorological, geological changes in the earth. None of the terms of the New Covenant are being fulfilled. Okay? So, we'll have two questions that we have to deal with. Uh, first, of, first of these is, what's new about the New Covenant? And we've pretty much already answered that. What's new about the New Covenant is that God actually affects its terms through the regenerating impulse of the Holy Spirit, whom he will place in the hearts of individuals. Okay, so, and, and and so, what was lacking up till this point was this universal regenerating impulse. And so, total depravity was such that nobody was seeking to fulfill this this covenant under Moses. And those who did were trying and failing. Okay, but the new covenant, new terms, God's actually going to regenerate them put the spirit into their hearts so that they will all call upon the name of the Lord their God and serve him from shoulder to shoulder okay so that's that's the newness of the new covenant here okay the other question that we'll have to deal with when we come back next week is how the church is related to the new covenant which is which is a really thorny sticky subject that's going to be i am not going to start it because I'll never they can come close to finishing it. So that'll be what we'll talk about uh, when we come together next time. Any questions on what we've done tonight?
1: Well, it's just, uh, was interesting hearing this. I didn't realize that there was so much involved here as
0: far as the pros and cons. And the, yeah. Yeah. I never, I never thought about some of these things. Yeah. There's a lot here. And, and even... Even dispensationalists have, are disagree- uh, have disagreements among themselves. I don't think major disagreements, but some disagreements here. I think that's okay. I, it, I, I don't think this is, you know, make or break kind of stuff here.
1: Just so, had a question about the animals. In mm-hmm. uh, the millennial, I, is that you're reinstituting the sacrificial system? So are the animals that are there for that purpose, or are they...
0: Apparently, partly, yes, yeah. so, but it seems like all the other animals. I mean, there's lions? lions and wolves too, so lions. Uh... They're not there for sacrifice. <laughs> <laughs> Can't sacrifice a lion yeah. or cobras. Ask them.
1: <laughs> so, from millennial to the to heaven, are there going to be animals in heaven?
0: I don't know that we have enough okay. information. To <laughs> I'm inclined to think yes, because there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth, which I I, I tend to think will be recast in in its original in its original form. Uh, But we'll be eating. What? We'll be eating, right? We'll be eating. I don't know if we'll be eating animals. So, but I I I'm assuming that there will be animals, but I guess I don't have enough information to go on. And I, I don't think the animals that we had as pets while we were here will be there. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> well, my, dog, my dog might be in heaven, but my cat. <laughs> I know where he went.
1: <laughs> okay. So. Okay.
0: So well, next week we'll come together and finish this up. Uh, and do we start. meet next week? Oh, that's oh, that's right. Yes, I have an announcement for you. Next week there is no meeting. Um, there's actually sort of a glitch in the camera, uh, the calendar. Uh, uh, apparently, you used to not meet on this week because you used to be in schools, mm-hmm. and that's spring break. Um, it was unintentional that it was canceled, but it was canceled. So it's canceled, and so we're probably going to extend this one more week, so it'll go into the first week of May rather than ending I mean, in the last base, week of April. May 6th, I think, was the last yeah. week, right. That's right. no so, yeah. yeah. meeting
1: next week. No,
0: go no, no. Yeah, place will be closed.